Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and My Time Capsule is the podcast where I talk to my guests about the five things from their life, any time in their life, that they would like to put in a time capsule. They pick four things that they cherish and would like to keep safe, but they also pick one thing that they rather regret, something they'd like to bury in the ground and never have to think of again. My guest in this episode of My Time Capsule is the actor, director, writer and casting director, yep, he keeps himself busy, Andrew Limford, who famously played Simon Raymond, the brother of Martine McCutcheon's character Tiffany Mitchell in EastEnders. Yep, remember that kiss? Still, a career isn't defined entirely by one gay kiss. He's had many theatre roles, including Bouncers, The Secret Diary of Adrian Mould, The Little Shop of Horrors, Oliver, The King and I, and Anything Goes. He's presented various shows, Wild Thing, Arty Facts, and Taste Today, and wrote the musical Disco Crazy, along with sketches for Dick and Dom, and the scripts for many pantomimes. He's directed Wuthering Heights, Steaming, Cheeky Chappy, a play about Max Miller, Side by Side by Sondheim, The Curse of the Werewolf, Dirty Dusting, I love the lift in the lake in that. The bit where they clean the dusters, yeah. Uh, Menopause the Musical, Mum's the Word, and Alf Ramsey Knew My Grandfather. He continues as a director and is head of casting at the leading UK theatre company Bill Kenwright Limited. I spoke to Andrew at his home in Los Angeles, over Zoom, sadly, although I suppose it's a lot better for the environment. So let's discover what, from his incredibly busy and varied career and life, Andrew Linford will choose to put in his time capsule. Can you hear me? I can, Andrew. Nice to meet you properly, Mike. How are you? All right. I'm all right, thank you. How's it there in the in the morning in LA? Three minutes past ten in the sunny morning of LA. There we are. Ah, shut your face. 
sunset boulevard right there. Wow. It all sounds very shishy, I know, but it's not really. <laughs> no, um, the strip is disgusting, really, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Well, it is when you walk around on a Monday morning after all the weekenders have been having a lovely time. Yeah, I bet, yeah. Am I the only person that saw you in Around the World in 80 Days, the musical? <laughs> You're the only person still living. Yeah. <laughs> I actually thought it was really good. You and Anthony Head. Yeah. I had the single. Really? Yeah, somewhere I've got the single. Tony Head always complains enormously about that. He said, because they use the photograph. He's got a great big zit right in the middle of his forehead. And he said, why can't they have just painted it out or something? Didn't have it in those days, did they? Didn't do it. No. The reason I came was because my best friend, Claire Wilson, uh, who's now a very busy costume designer on all sorts of exciting television things, back in the day would have been the wardrobe number two. Wow. And we shared a flat together. And um, she said, oh, it was quite a laugh, this show. You should come up and have a weekend in Buxton. So I did. I sort of, you know, slept on the floor of her digs and we spent a weekend in Buxton and I came to see the show. Oh, brilliant. So, Andrew, through the wonders of the internet, we get to talk about five things you want to put into a time capsule. Yes, I'm very excited about talking about this. Uh, yes, I'm in Los Angeles and it's a bright, sunny morning here. Yes, and uh, I'm delighted to be here to talk to you about this rather emotional process I've discovered of trying to... <laughs> <laughs> trying to come up with these time capture things. I've actually been thinking about it a lot, having listened to some of your previous episodes, which I've enjoyed mm-hmm. very much. Very varied as well. You had very different people picking very different things. Yeah. Yeah, it's been interesting thinking about what might go in there. Okay, all right. Well, let's find out what they are. What's your first item? Or thing or person or anything? I'm not going to restrict you to items. Yes, you see, this is the thing. I wish in a way you had. I'm never good with too much choice, <laughs> generally. <laughs> I'm, this or this is usually uh, my best way of working. Uh, never take me to a restaurant with a really big menu because you'll never get around <laughs> to eating, you know. So my first thing specifically is a building. And I was thinking about how buildings are so important in our lives, whether they're homes or schools or places of work or places of entertainment if it's a building you go to regularly you do start to become very affectionate towards buildings and when you see buildings being torn down and you know sometimes you see those sort of blocks of flats and and there's that moment where you can see the wallpaper and the fireplace on each floor and all that I feel very sort of emotional when I see that and I think gosh so many people have lived and died and argued and loved and all those things in that room Mm. And isn't it brilliant, but also fascinating that we become attached to literally bricks and mortar because that building might provide entertainment or protection or whatever. Mm. And before I do go off on a tandem, as my grandmother (laughs) used to say, (laughs) um, specifically, I would like to put in the Queen's Theatre Hornchurch, which was my local repertory regional theatre in Essex, east of London, where I grew up. And I really, I think, discovered certainly my love for theatre because of that building and also discovered my people, really, because I did enjoy school and had lots of school friends. But I joined the youth theatre, which was attached to the Queen's. But obviously in Essex, we called it youth theatre, obviously, because that's obviously the local local dialect. And when I joined UFIR, um, <laughs> I actually met the most brilliant bunch of people, many of whom are still my friends to this day. And I think, without wanting to sound cliched, we were the kind of crazy odd kids slightly that had found our way to the theatre. Mm. And in those days, Paul Tomlinson had run the theatre for a long time, but Paul was just leaving. And there was that moment, of course, because this was the kind of early 80s you know, cuts in the arts and all of that. And everyone was saying, well, is this the moment where we just get rid of this theatre? And there was a big outcry. And Bob Thompson came in 
uh, and ran the theatre. He was a young emerging director, of course, since has done tons of West End and television and lots of things. But Bob was this slightly angsty, full of himself director at the time, um, <laughs> who was like, you know what, we're going to have a youth theatre and we're going to have the kids in all the shows and we're going to really bring this community thing together with this place. And so Bob then started to put on shows like the Adam Bleasdale, No More Sitting on the Old School Bench, which was about kind of angsty, comprehensive schools. And he used yeah. all the youth theatre in that and Our Day Out, the Willie Russell, and used all mm. the kids in that. An adaptation of The Hobbit, which had never really been done on stage, but he used all the kids in that, you know. Wow. And these were the days when you still had to be licensed as a child actor. So you didn't do too many hours, but you didn't have to have equity cards or anything like that. You know, you could be a local kid and you were allowed to be in professional shows. So suddenly aged 12, 13, 14, I was on stage in proper shows with professional actors. You'd muck in there and be chatting away and they'd be effing and blinding about their agent and whatever, or, or, or <laughs> telling a funny theatrical story or whatever. And as a 12, 13 year old who was academic at school, but not particularly encouraged to do anything artistic at school and wasn't very good at sports, like I say, I kind of found this bunch of adults and kids who all just spoke this language that I thought, oh, this is amazing. This is fantastic. And you get the fact that adults, because you're part of the cast, they start treating you as an equal. Totally. Just like another adult. Which I think is good and bad in equal measure. <laughs> we had chaperones. We did have chaperones. Yeah. But again, how chaperones were, were these kind of feisty Essex old ladies. Mm -hmm. So they wouldn't take any shit, you know. They'd be no. like, you, you oi, come on, get on stage and whatever. But by the same token, they were sort of one of the gang as well. So they wouldn't say to you, don't talk to that actor. He's about to go on stage they would still sort of encourage you to be part of the team. It wasn't the mm. kids and the adults. No, often chaperones become chaperones because they have a love for theatre. That's right, yeah. I just remember feeling very at home and, and having a laugh. And because I lived locally, we had the youth theatre meetings twice a week, I think it was, like Tuesday night, Thursday night. Brilliant. But then as a result, I would just go there all the time. And that particular building has an enormous foyer space. And after school, sometimes we would just go there and just sit in the bar and hang out and eat crisps and drink Coca-Cola and just hang around to see actors that we might know. Or Bob would walk through the foyer and go, hello, team, or whatever. And you'd go, hello, Bob, you know, and, and you'd really feel like you were part of it. And then over a period of time, as we became older, when we were 15, 16, some of the guys did work experience or would go and work in the publicity department for a few mm -hmm. weeks or would pick up the phone on the switchboard for a few weeks or, or whatever. So I'm using the Queens as my route in. But I think, really, this category for me comes under regional theatre and how important it is mm. for people to find their way into the business, but also for what they do bring to the community. And, you know, we see all the time that reps are closing and they're becoming just touring houses and all the rest of it. And that's not to say that some wonderful material still goes into those places and people get to see some really wonderful actors in wonderful shows. But it was the last sort of knockings of this is the local theatre where people know each other Actors were quite regular, so you'd get the same almost local celebrities or who weren't celebrities at all, but they were just actors that came in to do the shows all the time. Yeah. And they became friends and colleagues and an important part of community. So really, I think I'm probably talking about how they serve community and, and, and give an artistic but also communal kind of hub 
for your local town or, or whatever. Yeah, for some people that would be a boxing club or a football club that makes them feel part of the community. So quite often it is sport for kids, particularly boys. So it's an unusual thing. I don't want to sound Essexist. For a girl, it's quite a cool thing, isn't it? To, you know, I do theatre. But for a boy, that's a risky thing to do, isn't it? It is. And I mean, I didn't go to like a rough comprehensive or anything. It was a kind of middle of the road kind of place. Mm. But there were some pretty strong characters at my school. <laughs> and actually, yes, I, I, I agree with what you're saying. But the flip side of that is also don't think for one minute this youth theatre was made out of kind of the airy fairy kids. I mean, the girls would have you in a fight for one thing, you know. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the boys were very macho Essex boys, but they wanted to be Marlon Brando or they wanted yeah, yeah. to be Anthony Head or somebody they might have seen in a West End musical or something. And thought, well, he's a dashing young chap who gets all the girls. I quite fancy a bit of that. I mean, there were a few sort of like, you know, slightly more artistic Nancy boys like me. <laughs> that used to like, I just want to do the dancing, actually. I don't, I don't want to do Chekhov. I just want to be in all, this, all the musical numbers. I cannot wear green. I can't wear green. And I just want to hang out with these girls because they're hilarious. And actually, on that note... I didn't really know about how funny people could really be. I got to that place and from the day I walked in, I laughed. Mm -hmm. Everyone was showing off in the most brilliant way and wanting to be <laughs> the loudest and the funniest, but loving each other for it. There wasn't any kind of, I genuinely don't remember any sense of rivalry or bitchiness going on. No. We just wanted to show off and have fun and quote the young ones and Blackadder and Victoria Wood and think we were hilarious. It was that kind of era, you know, it was just joyous. I don't know if you know, but this podcast actually sponsors a children's theatre group in Soham. I didn't know that. Viva. And... As you say, that whole sense of community that it gives, the trust that they have in each other spreads right through the whole thing, yeah. learning to rely on each other. If you're going to do a play with someone, you're going to do a musical, you've all got to put the work in, you've got to learn to trust each other to do the right thing at the right moment, and then you all appreciate people who do that. You're right, trust is so important. And actually, a mm. funny, funny story about that. So what used to happen was the actors that were in the show they would sort of come in and do a session with the youth theatre. So you'd meet different people. Of course, you'd do theatre games and trust exercises and all that yeah. stuff that, that, that you do. <laughs> and um, talk about health and safety. The Queen's Theatre has got a flat roof. And one of the actors said, come on, let's all go up on the roof. So he went up on the roof with this bunch <laughs> of 12 to 16-year-olds <laughs> and said, I want you to shut your eyes and run towards the edge of the building. Oh, my God. And we'll shout, stop way before you're going to get to the end, but you have to trust us to do it. <laughs> and that's what we... I'm not suggesting that your Soham Theatre School does this, obviously. They can't listen to this. No, I was going to say sorry. Please, please. This is, I, I'm saying this from a point of fascination and probably horror, actually. And very much a survivor. Yeah, I, well, in fairness, I'm here talking to you today, so yeah. let's, let's assume it did go okay. But I think, yes, I understand the, the safety implications, but all of those things made me feel braver and stronger as a young person. And mm -hmm. I'm sure that's what your guys are experiencing at the school in Soham. Yeah. I could talk about the Queen's Theatre forever because it really was <laughs> kind of a lifesaver for me in some ways, I think. But I, would, I just want to share one more thing with you about it, if I may. Mm. Um, and this is important, I think, because when I was 10, I remember it was specifically when I was 10, because you could join the youth theatre at 11. I'd been to see the Pantos and, and I, I guess I was sort of like, oh, this feels nice and whatever. Mm. And it wasn't just what was on stage. It was the whole experience of going to the box office and being front of house and seeing people selling programs and all of those things. It just felt like this exciting environment. And I wrote a letter, age 10. I found out the name of the theatre 
I think he was called the administrator, but he was kind of like the general manager. And mm. it was uh, Bill Johnson, who'd been an actor, but he'd become the general manager. So I wrote this letter and I said, dear Bill, uh, my name's Andrew and I live nearby and I've been to the theatre and I really enjoyed it. Could I please come and sell ice creams or programmes or something? Because I just like being around the theatre. <laughs> and Bill, who clearly was a very, very busy man, who I got to know much better in later years, took the time to write back to this local 10-year-old. And it basically said, dear Andrew, I'm afraid you can't do that, but thank you for your letter. You're a little bit young, but do you know we have a youth theatre? And if you would like me to, I'll put your name on the waiting list. And when you're 11, you can join this youth theatre. And I wrote back and said, yes, please. And then a year later, I was in the youth theatre. So again, I think what we have to remember as adults in the arts is... We must never take for granted how what we do affects people at all stages of their lives, but particularly young people. Mm -hmm. And had he not written back and said, yes, local child, you could do this, I would probably have never found my way into the business. I probably wouldn't be sitting here now today (laughs) talking to you if Bill hadn't responded, because I probably could have gone down a very different path if I hadn't walked through the doors of the youth theatre and met all those wonderful people. So I just think we all have those people in our lives that we remember did that kind and important thing that led to success or achievement or Mm. some level of exploration in our lives. And fulfilment. And fulfilment. And so because of the shared kindness and encouragement, and in a lot of ways, the kind of Essex no-nonsense sink or swim, if you're going to be here, muck in, and if you're not, then sod off type attitude. Mm-hmm. We all thrived, I think, and became yeah. better people in general and found our way into, into the business. Well, I think it's clearly not just theatre that you can affect the lives of people, but that generosity mm-hmm. and that welcoming attitude makes a big difference in life. So I'm very happy to put the Queen's Theatre Horn Church into the time capsule as your first item, Andrew. Great, thank you. You're welcome. Right, let's move on to item number two. Well, item number two, um, it does feed off of that slightly. And for people who've got long enough memories and watch television in the 90s, they may recall that I did a stint in EastEnders, mm-hmm. which I was very grateful for because it opened lots of doors. And I put EastEnders in not just to talk about my time in EastEnders, but really to talk about the social aspect that ongoing serial dramas kind of, ongoing drama series, I have to get it right, do actually have. I think probably not so much now because of the way that people watch shows. You know, we we can watch them whenever we like, which is all wonderful. Mm. But it does break what I think those television dramas used to really bring to, again, I kind of use the word community, the viewing community. Mm -hmm. Um, What I'm trying to say is when I was in EastEnders, I was in it from 96 to 2000. And it was during that period where, you know, all shows that are continuing, I think, have their golden periods and their not so golden periods. And I was lucky enough to be in it at a time when it was top of the ratings. We only had four terrestrial channels. Not many people had cable in those days. Channel 5 hadn't even been thought of. And 20 million people used to watch EastEnders. And only when it went out as well. That's right. And we were three episodes in those days. It was Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Mm -hmm. and the famous Sunday afternoon catch-up on BBC One. The Omnibus. The Omnibus, Mm. um, which is wonderful because you nearly got paid twice, so that was wonderful. (laughs) Um, But that aside, um, I think what Coronation Street, way before EastEnders and then EastEnders, and for a period, I guess, Emmerdale, particularly when it kind of revamped itself, Mm -hmm. they were important 
because I think what those shows used to do was bring people together because there was a common shared experience. And if you work on those shows, they used to say, what's the water cooler moment? What's the moment where at the office the next day when they get to the water cooler, people are going to say, oh, my God, did you see EastEnders last night? Mm -hmm. Do you think that so-and-so is going to split up with her? Do you think she's going to survive the accident? Do you think whatever, you know, this this kind of the water cooler moment? And I think without being too romantic about what those shows are, I think there was a period in time when even if you didn't watch those shows, there was something in the social kind of conscious that people kind of knew what was going on. I used to get into taxis sometimes, you know, classic cab driver moments. EastEnders in it. And I said, uh, yeah, that's right. He said, oh, yeah, um, my wife loves it. Oh, she never stops. Well, she won't miss EastEnders, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> she'll, she'll be so happy I met you. Um, you're the gay one, isn't you? Because that's what people used to say because I played a gay character called <laughs> yeah, Simon. Yeah. And I was like, yes, that's right. And he goes, of course, I can't stand it myself. And then <laughs> no. proceeded to talk about the show in some detail and mm-hmm. I thought this is so strange because first and foremost I used to say to people don't be ashamed to like something popular it provides something in its world it's not mm-hmm. necessarily Oscar material but it's not made to be that it's made to be fast narrative sharing stories with with, with you quickly um, and for you to relate to what's happening and uh, enjoy the feel like those people are part of your family you know in the corner of your living room three times a week it's like Mm. you know all this kind of thing and I do genuinely think way before I was in it but also the period when I was in EastEnders and shows like it I think there was a period where they really provided something quite important in television it was a common ground it was a common knowledge yes people still talk about Netflix dramas today but that's because they've binged watched them Mm. and the shared experience is totally different yeah. Because, I mean, I work in casting, so I try to remember actors and directors and all those things. You know, people say, oh, do you remember that bit where, and you say, actually, hang on, no, hang on, I can't remember that because I watched it a year ago and you've only just watched it or vice versa. And so mm-hmm. we're not like in that moment, in that dilemma, we're not sharing the drama with the characters in that exact moment. No, And I think it's a real shame that we've lost that because it's something that used to be really quite important and quite treasured, I think. And Again, when I was in, and you know, because you've been in lots of profile shows, when people come up to you, I mean, generally, all the responses I got from people in the street or in shops or airports or whatever when I was in EastEnders was really lovely and warm mm. and positive because they loved it. Mm-hmm. They loved the show. They loved how that felt to be part of that drama and share it with their families and talk about it like it was something of importance. And invariably, you know, people would say, you know what you need to do, Simon? You need to tell her to blah, blah, blah. blah. And I used to think it was absolutely lovely that people yeah. would say that. And I didn't mind sort of being the character for them in that moment because they're saying, I trust what you're doing. I believe what you're doing. I love that I've bumped into you. And I want to tell you, I'm in it with you. I'm sharing it with you. Yeah. I know exactly what you mean about the immediacy of it. Because I had a short stint in EastEnders. I played the vicar that buried Ethel. Was she dead at that point? She was dead, so I wasn't a cruel vicar. No. Phew, thank goodness for that, right? Not the evil vicar killer. Obviously. That's a bit more 2000s, I think. Yeah, it it is, yes. (laughs) (laughs) But for that three-month period, just everywhere I went, everybody went, all right, Vic, all right, mate, and that was it. And then after that... It faded away very quickly, as Mm. all these notoriety and fame does. The only thing you get that with now, that sense of the entire nation 
taking a breath at the same moment. Now that, of course, only happens with sporting events, live sporting events. I think that's the brilliant way of putting it. The nation taking a breath at the same moment is exactly what I'm talking about. And, you know, I think social media has a lot to do with it because the the, the shows themselves like to leak everything and get ahead of them mm. themselves. I mean, we used to have security obviously on the square, which they call the lot up at Elstree, of course, in London. In the days when I was on it, they would have a security just walking the perimeter of it to make sure the news of the world weren't on a ladder trying to take a photo mm. because that was the only access they had in those days to trying to see what was going on. And of course, now actors and producers and directors are posting things left, right and centre on social media. But that's how much they wanted to know. People were desperate to know what was going to happen. And, and when I, I came into the show, people were following me home before I had even gone on screen because um. there was this kind of rumour that my character was going to come in and mess up the lives of some very established loved characters and all that mm. kind, of, kind of thing. And I had to sort of say to the publicity people, I've got a feeling that they were like, oh yeah, is it a red Ford Fiesta with a blah, blah, blah? Yeah, well, that's the sun. And oh, wow. They knew all those things. And of course, that was very um, very strange for me. It's interesting isn't it, that they've changed that policy, that now they do like to reveal the storyline because my mother-in-law still watches EastEnders in the way that everybody else used to watch it. Right. She, for example, gets annoyed if dinner is slightly late because it means she misses the beginning mm. of EastEnders. And I say, you know, you can pause television. You know, you can watch television anytime you like. And she's like, no, no, I don't want to. She wants to know at 7.30, she's going to be sitting in front of that television and watching it. Because it's a high point of her day. Mm-hmm. I would love there to be this shared experience again. The thing that I always say to people is it bothers me that everything is is filmed like soap now. As you know, there's Mm. no rehearsal. You just turn up and do it. Mm -hmm. They used to call it rehearse, record. And now I think my friends just call it record, record, because you don't bother (laughs) doing the rehearsal. Um, (laughs) But the thing that bothers me is I do feel that the soaps underestimate their audience. They tell things very quickly exactly so they give stuff away you can almost write it yourself as you're watching it there's not Mm -hmm. really an element of surprise because you go well we saw that coming but then the enjoyment is waiting for the thing that you've predicted to happen versus slow builds and teasers and who might be coming in next or going out next I mean you know when, when I was in the show for example they did things in real time which you would never do now the David Wicks and Cindy Beale affair was an enormous story. But they were having an affair on screen for a year yeah, before yeah. Ian Beale found out. And it would be warmed up and taken out and they'd nearly get caught. And Pauline Fowler would sort of look over a washing line and think, what's going on there? But then it wouldn't really happen again for another few months. No. When I came into it, I, I, I had a sort of slow burner. Um, I played a character called Simon and uh, Tiffany played by Martin McCutcheon and uh, Tony Hills played by Mark Homer. They were together and, and the gay brother came in and stole her boyfriend. That was basically mm. the story. The reaction of the nation to that kiss that you did. Yes. I mean, a gay kiss on a mainstream television show. And that actually totally illustrates what I was about to say, because we had a slow run into it. Uh, mm-hmm. I think the character was allowed to become liked my character, people felt sorry for him because he was saying, we shouldn't be doing this and blah, blah, blah. And when we did this big cliffhanger, which I would have been in the show probably six, seven, eight months by then, mm. it made headline in the tabloids, get this filth off our screens, you know, yeah. in 1996. <laughs> and you go, yeah. what the hell, you know? Yeah. But it made headline news. I think one of the worst ever puns, it was the sign, and there was a picture of us kissing, and it said Queen's Vic underneath. <laughs> I was like... <laughs> Could have done better than that. Mm. Poor old Mark Homer, of course, was Mark Homer sexual. They did all these terrible Eastbenders, all these terrible <sighs> things. But 
a lot of people wrote into the papers or points of view as they used to in those days because no social media and said actually people are just responding to two minutes of television on a Tuesday night. If you bothered to watch for the last seven or eight months, you would care about these characters and you would understand mm-hmm. that this is actually the culmination of a very difficult emotional path for both of them. And, and don't just, you know, and people got very angry and, and protective of the work we were doing, which was very yes. sweet. But it's my point, which is if you kind of invest the time to establish and let the audience understand and love the characters, they're not going to be so judgmental. I think they're in a more of a dilemma themselves as viewers because they think, Mm. Oh God, we don't want Tiffany to be upset, but we understand that Simon's at this terrible background and he just wants to be loved. All these things you could read into it. Yeah. But I think often they underestimate audience's ability to see all that stuff and understand. I always say, just remember the people that watch EastEnders also watch Breaking Bad. The people that watch Emmerdale also watch Succession. These are clever, intelligent viewers. Villains become more interesting if they're really nice, normal people who've got this dark side or whatever. You know, it's like don't Mm. play the obvious all all the time. So I just wish that we could kind of get back to this sense of shared experience, but I don't think we will. I think that actually there will be a program that comes on and says, you know what, you can't stream this. This is now, and this is your opportunity to watch it. Somebody will do that and they'll find that the whole nation tunes in to see what it is. And then everybody else will go, hang on a minute. And it might well be the next step that you go backwards, as it were. I hope that happens. Mm. But I think the last time really that this kind of thing we're talking about happened was when EastEnders did the live episode where it was heavily hinted that the Grant character, Ross Kemp's character was going to come back. And it was actually Gillian Telford's character, Kathy, that Mm. Phil met down by the river at night in mysterious circumstances. (laughs) And they'd managed to keep it out of the press and everything. It was all kept top, top secret. In fact, my friend Claire, who I mentioned, she was costume designer on EastEnders at that time. And I said to her, "Who, who is it? And she said, honestly, I don't know. We're only going to literally find out 48 hours before wow. because they are being that guarded about who it's going to be. And clearly Gillian Telforth knew and she'd kept it quiet. I think technically her character was dead, but in one of those brilliant <laughs> soap, 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 it wasn't dead really. It had all been a hoax and there she was. But I remember that being a <gasps> moment for everyone yeah. and, and it really made headline news. Wouldn't it be lovely if dramas were making headline news in that way again? Well, I'm going to put that sort of EastEnders into the time capsule for you. All drama, ongoing series. Right. It's all in there for you. Thank you. But I'm afraid if you want to watch it, you have to watch it at a specific time. Yeah, exactly. There you go. Fantastic. Okay, let's move on to the third thing. Okay, it's time to take a short break for some adverts and maybe a message from our sponsors. We'll be back in no time. Well, sometime, obviously, but nothing too strenuous, I promise. See you soon. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to part two of My Time Capsule with Andrew Linford, the actor, director, writer, and casting director. And if you're very nice to him, he'll probably put the bins out for you as well. Let's see what else he will choose for his time capsule. So this is a bit generic and a bit artsy-fartsy, really. They get less clever as we go on, obviously. But this <laughs> one, this one, um, language, mm-hmm. language. I have no words. Very good. There you go. <laughs> Thank you. So I love comedy and I'm slightly obsessed with British comedy from Ealing comedy, Will Hay comedy, radio wartime comedy on the BBC, Round the Horn, right through to Not Going Out, Men Behaving Badly. I just like comedy. And the thing that fascinates me about comedy, having been lucky enough to direct comedy, both on screen and on stage and write some comedy as well, is that it's something in language which makes us laugh. As a five-year-old, I can remember the enjoyment of sitting on the slightly musty, smelly carpet at the back of the classroom for the last 15 minutes of the day and having the story time before home time. Yeah. And imagining these things that were being told. I remember them all as very matronly, warm, lovely teachers, but they weren't professional actors, but in the way that we've already alluded to, there was this way of storytelling from teachers that excited me and, and, and I thought was this wonderful shared moment, you know. I remember funny things, actually. I remember books being funny and things, you know, like The, the Hungry Caterpillar or The Owl Who Was Afraid of the Dark. These sort of things, they, they, had, they did have this slightly, I don't want to use the word camp, but if you look at some of those kind of school, there's this slightly <laughs> campy, funny thread to them. Even The Wind in the Willows has got it slightly... Yeah, no cowardy, ratty <laughs> characters that have a slight theatricality to them. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes, I um, do. But I love that language, particularly when it's in comedy. I'm making a mess of this. So I have explaining this. If, please don't switch off. I would explain it better. Um, <laughs> that language is as much about rhythm as it is about words. And I find it fascinating that something can be funny because of the rhythm of it as much mm-hmm. as the actual construction of the words. I think it's it's crucial, really. Quite often, if the rhythm is wrong, the thing's nowhere near as funny as it would be if you get the right rhythm to it. Half the trick of writing good comedy, I think, is writing the right words in the right order. Totally. There's a joke that has always stuck in my head from way, way back, 1983. I did a radio show, and one of the jokes in it was... I returned to the hotel room to find my wife and the hotel porter putting the shagpile carpet to the use after which it was presumably originally named. And it's a very long joke and very wordy, but it's just beautifully phrased. Absolutely. You know, you can look at Shakespeare, you can look at Noel Coward, you can look at any great writer, and it leaps off the page because it goes da 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 and mm. not because it goes to da 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 You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that sounds like the worst way to illustrate what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Kenneth Williams apparently said 
some people say funny things and some people say things funny. Mm. And that is what I'm trying to allude to as well, that language fascinates me because if you stress that word, the sentence becomes funny. And if you don't, or you stress that word, it almost becomes dramatic. Yes. You can change that very easily just by stressing or taking out one word or adding a comma, all these things. And the joy that language brings me, particularly comedy when it's written well, it fascinates me as a science almost as much as Mm. it does make me laugh. I was lucky enough to be a tutor for a while at the Actors Centre in London. And Peter Michael, that used to run it, used to invite tutors to go into other tutors' classes if they were happy to do so. Yeah, And this was the day when the most wonderful people were working there. Geraldine James would be doing a Shakespeare class and Derek Jacobi would be doing a whatever. Prunella Scales was doing a class about restoration comedy. <laughs> and I sat in the back of this class and she said many wonderful things and the students were absolutely hanging on her every word. But she would often say the best way to get a laugh, particularly in the restoration comedy, because it's kind of written in verse, is you only stress one word. Choose the word and stress it. And don't think that comedy has to end with a hard end of a line. Sometimes falling away is the best way to get your laugh. Yes. The voice coach at the Royal Shakespeare Company, sadly dead now, but the fantastic Cicely Berry, she told a story about Sybil Thorndike saying about restoration comedy, saying that... um, the important thing in the comedy was not the words, but the pauses between the words. And she said, it's not a pause, it's a poise. Yes, yes, you see, I totally get that. Mm. And then what frustrates me, of course, dare I say it, and I only say this because I've taught myself this by watching and listening and learning, that if I do see a comedy or something that's meant to be funny, and you think, oh, you misfired there, because if you you switch those words around, that's a really funny line. Or you've like double tagged it, you know, double tagging is doing the same joke twice. It's like, just oh, stop there. And mm. you've done it. You've done the joke. And then there's three words too many. Yeah, as, as if you're explaining the explanation. Exactly. Almost. And then, of course, different languages uh, and different cultures then have different rhythms, which is why sometimes we don't get the Spanish sense of humour. Or we think Germans don't have a sense of humour, which is bizarre. Of course they do. Of course they do. But it's because the rhythm, as much as anything else, is mm. totally different in their culture. But then why does comedy work on odd numbers? Why does comedy work in three and fives mm. and drama work in fours and sixes? So it must be in your gut, I think. It must absolutely be instinctive. Yeah. I'm sure that you feel those things mm. naturally. You know this phrase that people use all the time, oh, well, that person's got funny bones. Yeah. I think what that means is that person is in tune with that rhythm more than somebody else. Mm. They just inherently are hearing that rhythm or experiencing that rhythm in their kind of daily life a little more than somebody else might be. There are some people who just seem to have honed it to such a skill that Mm. you can't believe they're doing it so quickly. I, I noticed the other day that Mark Steele, I really love Mark Steele, and he's a fantastically funny man, but he was saying how every comic in the country knows that Lee Mack has the fastest comedy brain. And he thinks the only thing that makes him hesitate, Lee Mack, is deciding which joke of the myriad of jokes he's thought of in the second that's gone by he's going to use. I can well believe it, yeah. Mm. Regions have their rhythms as well. I was brought up in East London, Essex, where particularly women sort of had this slightly camp turn of rays. And sometimes I would get told off for laughing. (laughs) I'd be like, stop laughing. There was a big fat lady that lived up our road who was lovely, but she was a huge fat lady. 
And one day she came over for something and my mum said, can I get you anything? And she said, no, it's all right. I've just had a lovely sausage sandwich. (laughs) And it's just a sort of funny. It is funny. You can just see her biting into these big fat sausages. And there was just something about it that made me chuckle. And I remember my mum saying, stop it. Don't laugh. That's rude. (laughs) My mum just hadn't heard it in a way that I had heard it. Do you, know, do you know what I mean? Mm. I like the fact that you see that developing in people as well. We go back to that thing of the kids, you know, the youth theatre. Uh, I love words as well. I love messing with words all the time, and my brain does it all the time. So quite often I don't vocalise it. But just today, my grandson found the phrase bits and bobs funny. And I said, oh, that'd be a good television title. Bob Bitson and his bits and bobs. And my grandson said, is that alliteration, Granddad?" I was very pleased. And I think you've tapped into the German there because Bob Bitson sounds slightly German as well. So maybe, <laughs> maybe they, you, you, can, you, can, you can prove in your programme that Germans do have a sense of humour. They, <laughs> yeah, they do. Bob Bitson, yes. Well, all right, we'll move on. But with the phrase, what's that in the road ahead? Or what's that in the road ahead? Genius. So we shall put a nice bit of language into the time capsule. There we are. So we've got one more nice thing. And one more thing that you want to get rid of. Yes. So if I haven't bored everyone to death already, um, <laughs> this is much more specific. Uh, pets, mm-hmm. in particular dogs. I've always had animals in my life. Goldfish, chickens we even had in our house in Essex. And we just lived on a normal street. I'm sure the neighbours were delighted about that. <laughs> Cats, dogs, rabbits, nothing strange. We didn't have any reptiles or anything like that, which I don't support at all having exotic animals as pets, I have to say. but. Mm-hmm. Um, Pets and in particular dogs. I have two dogs now. Uh, one is sat at my feet and the other one's snoring his head off over there. Um, two rescue dogs, which uh, I acquired over here. They're all up to date with their injections and so on. So if I come back to the UK permanently, they can travel back with me. Mm-hmm. Um, but my good friend Debbie O'Brien, who's a casting director who I work with many times on her social media page, it says, not enough dogs. <laughs> and I love that because I don't think you can ever have enough dogs in your life. Um, these two genuinely keep me sane. All the things that people say about dogs, the unconditional love and all the rest of it. I talk to them all day. They know all my troubles. They know all my happy times. They adore me. I adore them. I don't like going out late at night anymore because I'd rather be at home sat on the sofa with my dogs. Mm-hmm. So they're ruining my life, basically. No, <laughs> <laughs> But I, I think that, you know, we know that generally people can be calmed and people in hospital can get better if they spend time with caring dogs that come in and they share time and all those things. I think we just cease momentarily to have to deal with other humans as much as anything else. Um, And of course we put human traits onto our animals. And I know ultimately these two dogs don't know that their names are Banksy and Bertie, which actually are their names. Um, (laughs) But I know that my relationship with them is what I need it to be, what I want it to be. And they just bring me a lot of joy. And I see particularly in Los Angeles, people do have dogs. It's a dog culture. You know, you can take dogs to cafes and restaurants, mostly because people sit outside here, obviously. Yeah. Everyone's got a dog. Mm. So you see people walking their dogs three, four, five times a day because they live in apartments. And there's the social aspect and all of that because you see the other dog walkers. I say social, uh, Bertie, who was at rescue, did live on the streets and he's a teddy bear in the house and turns into like this rock violent <laughs> man-eating mad person on the street. So we have to be a little <laughs> bit careful with him, but yeah. we're doing our best. But yeah, I mean, they just, they just bring so much to lives, I think. My relationship with my dogs in recent years, as I've got older, I think, and I suppose just a bit, little more solitary, not just because of pandemic, but because I'm writing more and casting more and often mm-hmm. that's just me at my laptop for quite long hours of the day they waddle in and make sure I'm all right and waddle out again and sometimes sit with me on the 
on the desk actually sometimes that's Banksy's <laughs> favorite trick um but um yeah I think I think dogs and everything they bring is something I I don't think I could ever live without actually I bet they do know that their names are Banksy and Bertie though if you call Banksy does Bertie turn round so of course they do but that's what I mean is it's like they know that sound. Yeah. But in, in my head, I know that they know everything I tell them. And yeah, yeah. Because living in Los Angeles, there's dog rescues galore and they try to encourage you to go to dog rescues. And Banksy came along and he was called Tofu. <laughs> and we thought, well, we quite want an, a Hollywood name, but I think Tofu's going a little bit too far. Yes. So <laughs> the rescue was near the street Fairbanks. Was a street in Fairbanks, which I assume is named after Douglas Fairbanks. Mm-hmm. And so his proper name on his vet's papers is Fairbanks. But we thought, well, that's a nice Hollywood name that shortens to a very British name, Banksy. Mm. And then Bertie came along two years later, and he was called Finnegan because they'd rescued him on St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> and we thought, mm, not sure about that. So we thought, well, where else? And there's a street that crosses Fairbanks called Robertson. So technically, he's Robertson. Right. But shortened to Bertie. So that's their fancy name, John. And everyone said, whatever you do, when you get another dog, don't give it a name that sounds like the existing dog's name. They have to be very different. So different commands, blah, blah, blah. So to quote your grandson, we alliterated and did Bertie, Bertie <laughs> and Banksy. And so occasionally you'll shout one name and they'll both turn around and go, do you mean me? What? You want me? Uh, but generally, generally, they're quite good on their own. Their own okay, names. so Andrew, I'm going to give advice to any young actors or people who are thinking of becoming actors now, and I want to know if you think this would work. Because if you're involved in casting, would you call in someone called Fairbanks Robertson? 100%. There you are. So <laughs> I would definitely go for that with an equity name. I think also possibly Robertson Fairbanks might well work. I think either way, yeah. I'm up for both of those. And a friend of mine who's an author, she lives in the Lincolnshire countryside where some of those villages have got the most brilliant names. If it's like a two villages, so um, this village three miles and that village four miles, but they're written above each other. Mm-hmm. Norton Disney is one of the names I think that <laughs> she came up with. And um, sometimes when I'm driving the car, I say to whoever I'm in the car with, the next sign we pass, that's going to be your name forever. <laughs> I hope it's a good one. No, they're pretty good, these boys. Um, when, when we first put them together, Banksy was not happy about this other dog because he was a little bit of a princess, our lovely Banksy, I have to say. Um, and there was a moment in time where we kind of considered, is this too... Is this too much? What should we do? Should we should we actually send Bertie back and get another dog? Or just buy another apartment? Buy another apartment, obviously. Mm. But we had this terrible thing. And it was actually very traumatic because we thought, oh, gosh, we're mentioning the right thing. We've taken advice from doggy people and blah, blah, blah. The woman at the rescue that Bertie had come from said something which I've never forgotten. And she said, actually, with animals, it's very simple. They need two things. They need love and they need patience. And they will work it out. And they are now inseparable Hmm. it took about three months but they are best buddies Mm. and they adore each other and i suppose that's kind of true for many things in life but she said with animals it's just love and patience any animal will will warm to you or understand you if you are loving and you are patient well i think that may well work in almost every circumstance i guess Mm. i guess yes so can I have dogs forever? You please? can have you can have all the dogs you've ever had. Although the thought of burying them in a time capsule is slightly alarming. But, um, <laughs> Think of it as an eternal kennel. Then I'm happy. Three walks a day, fantastic food. I'm loving it even more. I hope they can't hear you. Don't get their expectations <laughs> too high. But uh, yes, dogs, please, would be lovely.
Absolutely. In it goes. Fantastic. So we've only got the thing that you'd like to get rid of from your life to put into the time capsule. This is the hardest one. I did find it quite emotional, actually, thinking of these things for various reasons, maybe where I sort of currently am in my life. And actually, I'm not sure if I want to be in Los Angeles. And as I get slightly older, slightly older, <laughs> um, I think maybe I should be back in the UK. Um, how lucky I am to have the opportunity to be here. But, you know, you just sometimes have those moments, I think, particularly after what's happened in the last mm. couple of years, that you just weigh things up and think about things and all the rest of it. But <sighs> so... Things I'd considered. Self-doubt. I think self-doubt is a terrible thing, isn't it? And of course, we all suffer from mm. it. But then you have to turn things into a positive. And self-doubt actually sometimes is what spurs you on and makes you discover new things and probably makes you jump the next hurdle. I don't know. So I thought, is crippling self-doubt something which everybody experiences? Or is it just me at times? <laughs> I don't know. And I thought maybe that's something I'd like to get rid of. Time wasted. Mm. Worrying about what others think. And I do my best not to get into that. Jealousy. People who call you mate or hun <laughs> when you've only just met them. I'm like, don't do that, please. And don't write it down. That's the worst thing. <laughs> I work with agents all the time on email with my casting work. And I know they're just being nice. Don't get me wrong. But you'll get an assistant kind of say, hi, hun, mm. written down. And you're like, I've never met you. And I'm sort of trying to offer your client an audition. Please don't call me hun. <laughs> Maybe I just sound old and miserable. I don't know. But <laughs> often, you know, people call you mate when actually they're being passive aggressive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, all right, mate. Calm down, mate. Mm. You know, it's all that. And you're like, no, 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 no. Don't call me mate. No. So I don't understand that language, in fairness. I'd like to put most chat shows in these days because chat shows used to be fascinating examples of exploring people in the media or celebrity. And now it's just people going on and plugging their book or their movie. I'd like to put Piers Morgan in there. I'd like to put all sorts of things in there. So what I'm trying to say to you, Mike, is I'm, I'm, a, bit, I'm a bit overwhelmed and stumped by all the things that could go in there. So after much soul searching, I've decided it can really only be one thing. And that is celery, <laughs> which is the devil's work. I'm glad you took this so seriously. You've really thought about this and you've touched a nerve with the whole nation there. Well, <laughs> celery, it's bitter. It spoils any meal. How people dip it in salad cream and just eat it or whatever, I have no idea. Um, no, it's the devil's work. So I could be much more poetic. Probably all those other things that I've talked about, I think are important, particularly Piers Morgan. Um, I mean, again... I'm not going to try and get too poetic about celery, but as a kid, mm. when you went to a party as a child or something, people always had peanut butter sandwiches. And I know it was the 1970s, but and celery, you know, you'd have a celery and everyone was like, <laughs> I hated peanut butter and I hated celery. But as a polite, slightly emotionally repressed six-year-old, I couldn't say anything. So I had to eat the celery, which made me feel physically ill. And I'd eat the peanut butter sandwiches, which made me feel physically ill. So maybe there's a whole emotional <laughs> connection to celery, which is more a case of, I've never felt I could tell my mother I didn't like celery or whatever. I don't know. Well, I think my wife would completely agree with you on this. So I'm happy to do it because she would certainly like celery to be banned from life. Even if it's in a stew or a soup, she says, that's it, it's ruined. Oh, but hang on, just rewind, rewind there. Yes. Even if it's in a stew or a soup, who in... <laughs> God's name would put celery <laughs> in a stew or a soup. I mean, it's like, what is that? What is that? Come on, that's ridiculous. I mean, celery, no, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't imagine celery in anything. It doesn't even look nice. It's got grooves on it and it kind of looks like 
Is it something to do with rhubarb? I don't think so. Is no. it like the rhubarb family? Because that's all like eating stalks. And that upsets me. It no. seems bizarre, doesn't it, that we cut the leaves off yeah. and eat the stalk? Because you wouldn't do that with it. A... With almost anything else, I think. With anything else? No. no. I guess what that means is people that like celery should have vases of stalks in their house <laughs> with, no, <laughs> with no flowers on them. And when it comes to broccoli or anything else, they're only allowed that really chunky stuff that we all cut off and throw away. The chunky bit. That's it. Yeah. So I'm not going to do a Miss World and say helping old people and saving the world. I mean, all those things go without saying. So I think celery, it has to be. Okay. <laughs> we, shall, we shall decelerate, as it were. Very good. You're welcome. So, all right, celery gets buried in its own special chamber and gets locked away, never to be seen again. Please. That'd be great. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Thanks, hon. That's all right, sweetie. <laughs> Weirdly, darling and sweetie, I don't mind so much. That's because you went to the Queen's Theatre Hornchurch. Probably is, mate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but hun is a new thing, isn't it? That's like an abbreviation of honey. Oh, I suppose sweetie is short for sweetheart, is it? Yeah. See, we're back into language now. I'm going to drift off into okay. discussing language while people lose the world to me. <laughs> while the go. sick tune plays quietly in the background and we fade away. Play me off, exactly. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But thank you. How lovely to talk to you. Thanks, Andrew. That was really gorgeous. Thank you. I've enjoyed every minute. Brilliant. You have been listening to My Time Capsule, with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my lovely guest, Andrew Limford. Please do subscribe to, rate, and maybe even review this podcast. You can certainly write a review on Apple Podcasts, and there may be other providers that give you that chance. We read them all, I promise, and are very touched by some of the lovely things people have said over the past two years. They don't give you the chance to reply, but I promise you, if we could, we'd be saying thank you very effusively in nearly all cases. The one person who gave us one star has, well, has a right to their opinion. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even swear. Do you see that? That's not bad, is it? Bastard. Anyway, you can follow me or my time capsule on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. Bastard! Or by foot, if you're really weird. Do get in touch that way and let us know what you think of the podcast, apart from the bastard! And feel free to make suggestions for possible future guests. Do tag them in if you mention them, and you never know. It's worked before. The theme tune to My Time Capsule is by Pass the Peas Music and is available to listen to or download on Spotify. This cast-off production for Acast was produced by John Fenton Stevens. And just in case you've forgotten or didn't bother to make a note of it in the first place, my name is Mike Fenton Stevens, and I'm currently available for work. People do ask me why I became an actor. Uh, at least lots of people have said, why on earth did you become an actor? <laughs> it's a strange emphasis there, isn't it? Well, if you're interested, there's a long and a short answer to that question. The short answer is, I do it for the money, fame and adulation. Uh, the long answer is, I do it for the money, fame, money, adulation and money. And fame and adulation. And, of course, the money. Hang on a minute, where's everyone gone? Oh, it seems no one was interested. Oh, well, bye. One star. Fucking bastard. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health 
right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.